Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello, you are listening to a new episode of Talking France, a podcast by the team at the local France. This week, we'll explore why the French public are compared to stroppy teenagers when it comes to their relationship with the state. Are they just a bunch of ungrateful kids or are they right to be so demanding? We will, of course, discuss the next moves in the battle over pension reform after the third day of mass strikes and protests this week. Visitors have been warned off two of France's most famous beauty spots. We'll find out why and look at what the country's best natural attractions are doing to stay off the list of no-go sites. And that most famous of French statesmen, Charles de Gaulle, has been in the news this week. Well, one of his grandsons has, at least. We'll explain what he's been up to and find out more about what happened to the former president's family. And if you want to understand the reasoning behind French school holiday dates and learn some handy tips for life in France, then stay tuned until the end. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and I'll be joined once again by the three musketeers, editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield, and our politics expert John Litchfield. Jen, you're going to start us off this week. It's still the biggest story in France. We're obviously talking about pension strikes. This week, we saw the third day of action. Bring us up to date, Jen. What happened this week? Yeah, so people took to the streets again on Tuesday in France, and plenty of workers walked out. We saw a turnout drop a bit compared with last week's action. The French Interior Ministry estimates that about 757,000 people protested across France, which is lower than the 1.27 million that we saw take to the streets on January 31st. It also seems like there were a few more clashes between police and protesters this time, specifically in Nantes, Paris, and Rennes, which involved police using tear gas against protesters, according to AFP. And then in terms of strikes and disruption levels, this action on Tuesday was a bit less disruptive than last week as well. According to France Info, 25% of French national rail workers walked out on Tuesday, in contrast to the 36% that walked out during the previous day of action on the 31st. And then there was a similar drop in the number of teachers out on strike as well. Yeah, the number of strikers and the number of protesters fell on Tuesday compared to the previous day of action. Jen, what about fuel strikes? We know that oil refinery workers were among those who walked out this week. Drivers in France will be remembering October when a previous strike over wages led to quite serious fuel shortages and long queues at pumps across the country. Do they have reason to be edgy this time around, Jen? Well, there is an understandable concern, but so far, oil refinery workers have participated in two most mobilizations, and this week was the third. It was 72 hours long, and it was planned to coincide with the latest protests. And up until now, producers have been pretty confident that there are going to be no supply issues as a result of these past three strike actions. And they've assured drivers that stocks are full. But on the other hand, oil refinery workers are meeting today to decide on whether there will be further actions and whether or not to extend these strikes to other parts of the oil sector. So 
As of now, basically no supply issues, but industry experts are warning that problems could arise if strike action and blockades are ramped up, and particularly if drivers resort to panic buying. Interesting. Thanks, Jen. Now, just an update about what is actually happening with this controversial reform. Where is it at the moment, Jen? So right now, France's parliament is debating the bill to change the minimum pension age in France from 62 to 64. Things have gotten a bit heated in parliament in those debates. Macron's allies are hoping that they'll be able to pass the bill with the help of the center-right party, Les Républicains. Uh, But there is a lot of opposition from the left. And so far, left-wing opposition has filed thousands of amendments to the bill. On Sunday, Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne gave gave the opposition a bit of a concession regarding long careers. Uh, It would allow people who started work at the age of 20 or 21 to be able to leave for retirement earlier than others. But still, unions are calling this a, quote, band-aid solution to the problem. The bill is going to continue being debated for at least the next few weeks in France's Assemblée Nationale. And technically, France's parliament has a total of 50 days, meaning until March 26th at midnight, to decide on the bill. And ultimately, Macron's goal is for it to pass before the summer to be put into effect by September 1st. Now, just before I bring in politics expert John Litchfield to give his view on when and if this bill will pass, Jen, we should bring listeners up to date. What have the unions planned next? So Saturday is the next day of action. So far, unions representing SNCF workers have already said that they're not going to call on rail workers to strike during a weekend when families are going to be heading off on holidays. Uh, instead, they're hoping that Saturday will be another day of widespread protest and mobilization. So basically, this means that Saturday Saturday will probably be a bit less disruptive transport-wise than Tuesday was. Uh, Philippe Martinez, the head of the CGT union, has said that if the government keeps on refusing to listen, then of course things will have to be ratcheted up. Uh, And on Wednesday, unions announced another day of strike action that's going to take place on February 16th, so next Thursday. And as things stand, this would be the fifth day of mobilization in France. And this is a good moment to bring in John. I asked John, our politics expert, whether he thinks the unions will now step up strike action and ramp up the pressure on the government. Well, the third day of action yesterday, as you say, and the numbers fell quite dramatically, really. You know, the momentum is quite important in these things. And I think that was more of a drop than the unions had expected. It was expected it would be lower yesterday, partly because there's another big day of action on Saturday. And this now will be the crucial day in the numbers game that's going on, because they've very unusually chosen to have a day of some scattered strikes, but certainly marches on a weekend in the hope that a lot more private sector workers will join in because it's thought they're unwilling to take a day off work and and lose a day's wages in the week. And therefore, they'll turn out in huge numbers on Saturday. It's ready to be seen whether that's the case or not. If the numbers are disappointing again on Saturday, I think, you know, that's definitely a sign that the movement is beginning to fade. And the strikes yesterday were also pretty ineffective. Only something like one in four rail workers were on strike yesterday compared to one in two on the first day. I think that the the crucial thing is, yes, if the numbers go up again on the weekend, the present strategy of of these big days of action, cranking up pressure on the, the government is working. That's definitely the strategy of the moderate unions. If it fails, then I think the more radical unions are going to say, no, this isn't working. We have to move to kind of open-ended strikes in the key sectors like railways, oil refineries, power stations, which obviously would have a much more direct effect on people, but could then annoy public opinion and they would lose the battle that way. So there's a big argument going on within the unions about that. John, I mean, just at the beginning of this dispute, the unions promised the mother of all battles. It doesn't feel like it's been that up to now. Is that a possibility still ahead if they really do choose the the more militant unions, choose to go their own way and really kind of 
step up the disruption that they can cause in France. Yes, but that's definitely not the strategy that's wanted by the CFDT um, union, the more moderate and the biggest uh, of the trade union federations, which believes that would be calamitous, that although there is a lot of opposition to pension reform in the country, still something like 70%, a lot of that is kind of soft opposition, opposition to anything the government might do. And once you start annoying people, messing around with their holidays, their ability to get to work, whether they can fill their car with petrol or diesel, then, you know, support for the unions will collapse pretty radically, they fear. The more radical unions believe that they, they can essentially hold the government by the throat. If you combine the sort of rail strikes we've seen in the past with the petrol strikes we saw at the end of last year, that could be really calamitous for the country. So, as I say, that strategy has definitely been the kind of argument between the moderate and more radical elements in the union movement. So far, the moderates have kind of called the tune. I think Saturday is the last chance they have to prove that that's working. And as we do on Talking France, we like to pick out some French personalities who've been in the news. Jen, this week we've picked Charles de Gaulle's grandson, Pierre de Gaulle. Tell us a bit more about Pierre, Jen, before we find out why he's been in the news. Well, so I'll actually start with Charles de Gaulle, who is the founder of France's Fifth Republic, which we're currently in. He's the former president. He was a brigadier general in the French military. And you probably know him as the leader of Free France against Nazi Germany during World War II. And we're talking about his grandson today, the 59-year-old Pierre de Gaulle, who's actually the youngest son of Charles de Gaulle's son, Philippe. Unlike Pierre's three older brothers, his father and his grandfather, Pierre did not go into the military or the government. Instead, he went to the prestigious Paris-based business school, HEC, and he works in private banking as a consultant in strategy and corporate finance. And throughout his career, he's actually worked in several big cities like Paris, London, and Geneva, and he reportedly lives in Switzerland. And why has he made the headlines this week, Jen? Well, Pierre has landed himself in some hot water after expressing his pro-Kremlin views. Recently, he told Le Parisien that Vladimir Putin is a great leader for his country. And just last week, he reportedly visited Moscow before traveling to Volgograd for World War II commemorations that would also be attended by Russian leader Vladimir Putin. In the same interview with the Parisien, he also said that the war in Ukraine was caused by, quote, the disastrous role of NATO, unquote, and the reckless policies of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, as well as neo-Nazi military groups. After Pierre's comments circulated publicly, his older brother Yves published a statement saying that his brother Pierre's analysis did not represent anyone but himself and certainly did not represent the views of the de Gaulle family or the late General de Gaulle. Oddly enough, Pierre is actually not the only controversial member of the family. Charles de Gaulle's other grandson, who's also named Charles de Gaulle, actually (laughs) caused quite a stir in the 1990s when he joined the far-right National Front Party, as it was known then. And some people at the time likened that to the Pope converting to Islam. Wow. Now, we don't often hear about or talk about the descendants of General Charles de Gaulle. Just tell us what happened to the rest of his family, Jen. So Charles de Gaulle himself came from a family of staunch traditional Catholics. His wife, Yvonne, was also quite religious and conservative. She was known for having campaigned against prostitution and the selling of pornographic materials in newsstands. And according to some sources, she even tried to outlaw miniskirts in France. And together, the couple had three children, Philippe, Elisabeth, and Anne. And then eventually they went on to have five grandchildren, many of whom have had military or political careers in France. So 
their firstborn son, Philippe, actually served as a senator from Paris for almost 20 years, and he's still alive today. Uh, he's 101 years old. As for Charles de Gaulle's other children, Elizabeth, the second child, went on to marry a member of de Gaulle's military cabinet, and she led a pretty quiet life and died in 2013. And then there was Charles de Gaulle's youngest daughter, Anne, who lived with Down syndrome. And there are several reports that Charles de Gaulle, who was known for being quite stoic, was actually very warm and extroverted with his daughter, Anne. She died of pneumonia at the age of 20, and de Gaulle claims that after an attempted assassination attempt in 1962, it was actually a frame of a photograph of Anne that he had in his pocket that stopped a bullet from killing him. Both de Gaulle and Anne are buried together in Colombe les deux églises, uh, which is located in the département of Haute-Marne in eastern France, uh, where the couple had their second home. Ah, really interesting. Thanks, Jen, to fill us up to date with what happened to Charles de Gaulle's family. Now, before we go on, I just want to say thanks to those listeners who emailed in with feedback and comments in the last few days. We really appreciate hearing from you. We'd be really grateful if everyone could review the podcast or recommend it to friends and family. And just a reminder that it's only thanks to our paying members that we are able to produce it in the first place. Thanks to all our listeners. And in our final talking point this week, we are going to move around the country. Jen, We've picked out this story about two popular tourist attractions around France, the Cliffs of Etretat in Normandy and the Calanque National Park on the Mediterranean coast. They've made Fodor's Travel no list of places to avoid in 2023. I've been to both of them. They are spectacular. Why are they on this no list, Jen? What is this no list? So this no list is basically a list that Fodor's explains as places you might want to avoid to help protect their natural environment. So it's not telling you that you should boycott these spots necessarily or that they're low quality in any way. It's just focused mostly on protecting their natural environments. So as for Etretat and the Calanque, they're on the list because of tourist overcrowding and threats to the environment. So take Etretat, for example. The cliffs are absolutely beautiful, but each year over one million tourists flock there. And apparently, according to the Etretat Association, just the sheer number of visitors is leading to an increase in landslides and cliff collapses in the area that's already dealing with coastal erosion. And then there's a similar issue for the Calanque. So these are unique old rock formations along steep cliffs on the Mediterranean near Marseille. And they're a really popular place to visit, but the rock formations are actually crumbling under the weight of too many tourists. Yeah, I mean, you're certainly not going to be on your own if you visit both of these places. But what about the efforts by authorities to do something about the overcrowding, Jen? Are they taking in any steps? Yeah, so in Etretat, local authorities have put a maximum quota of 5,000 vehicles per day that are allowed to visit the popular resort area. And this is hopefully going to help reduce the number of people that are walking on the cliffs in order to stave off landslides and more erosion. And then as for the Calanque, uh, local authorities have also put in place rules to make it so that there's a maximum of four. 400 tourists that are allowed to visit one of the most popular Calanque, the Calanque de Sugiton, daily. Now, Jen, we're of course lucky in France just because of the sheer number of natural beauty spots. Are there any others that are a victim of their own success and have had to limit tourist numbers? Yeah, like you said, there are many wonderful places to visit in France. And as a result, several popular islands, for example, off the coast of France, have had to put in place limits on the number of visitors who can pre-book tickets with ferries to take them over to the islands. For example, the spectacular Ile de Porcole near Toulon. And then other tourist-heavy places are trying to find more sustainable tourism options, like Mont Saint-Michel off the coast of Brittany and Normandy. 
A good example is the Puy du Paru crater in Puy du Dôme in the Auvergne. So to remedy the erosion caused by tourist overcrowding, officials in this area have reorganized the management of visitor flows. And they've done this by developing pedestrian paths and establishing integrated signage as well as landscaped parking lots at the foot of the site. And what I find most interesting is they put in place an electric train uh, to help replace the over 50,000 cars and 7,000 buses that used to climb up the extinct volcano slopes every year. And ultimately, that move has helped to save at least 5,200 tons of CO2, and it makes the summit easier to access all year. Thanks, Jen. Yes, some spectacular places around France. It really is worth doing your research and finding out the quietest times to visit before you book your spot. Now, one of the aspects of this pension strike and the battle with the government that it's highlighted is this uh, love-hate relationship, should we say, between the French and the state. Emma, I think that's a fair way to call it. You've been looking into this for us. Before we get some analysis from John again, just spell out what the, what we're talking about here. Well, if we're talking specifically about pensions, I do feel that this is maybe something that foreign observers miss slightly, is that for the vast majority of French people, their entire pension will come from the state. In other countries like the UK or the US, it's very common to have a sort of mix of public and private pension plans. But for most people in France, their pension is their state pension. And it's important to point out this isn't a handout. You contribute to your own pension fund through contributions, but it's administered by the state. There are a few like sort of savings plans for private pensions, but they're really only for quite a small minority of rich people. So when we talk about, you know, sort of minimum pension amounts, that's what people are getting. And that is pretty typical that the state would be heavily involved in aspects of your life. It really is a cradle to grave thing. In fact, it starts very, very early when you have a baby uh, in France. The French state sends you like, a load of paperwork, but it includes a kind of almost like a promise or a contract, if you like, from the state, and that basically you promise to take care of your child to the best of your ability, and in return the state promises to provide services like schooling, healthcare, leisure activities, plus extra support for your family if you need it. And that really does continue until you die, basically. For the vast majority of people throughout their lives, healthcare will be provided by the state, schooling, leisure facilities, public spaces like parks and beaches are owned by the state. The state gets involved in transport. It owns SNCF, the yeah, train company. The state mostly owns EDF. And there are even some festivals and events that are organised by the state. If you're on low incomes or if you're elderly, there's a whole host of other benefits from state-subsidised holidays to vouchers to get a bike. And even some of the things that are provided by your employer, like restaurant vouchers and travel passes, they're, they're really only there because the state tells the employer they have to. And all of this, obviously, is just in, just in normal times, in sort of particular troubled times or times of emergency that's when we really see the state swing into action so I'm thinking for example of this huge packet of financial aid during the pandemic it was called quoi qu'il en coûte whatever it costs and it was you know sort of supporting people financially through the pandemic and more recently things like the energy bill price freeze lots of people around Europe including a lot of my friends and family in the UK were desperately worried about electricity bills suddenly shooting up after the Russian invasion of Ukraine here in France we didn't really worry about that prices were frozen by the state mm. Is that, that's kind of the version of the magic money tree. In other words, the French government were willing to spend what it takes to kind of basically keep the country running smoothly, whether in the pandemic or this rising energy prices. This comes at a cost, though, doesn't it? Well, yes. I mean, obviously, this is uh, this is expensive. I think maybe the French government might dispute your uh, your characterization of the magic money tree. They would say this was a carefully costed mm. plan and it helped avoid going into recession. But maybe let's not get into that. Um, but yes, France is a high spender on social welfare. In 2021, France had the second highest GDP to tax 
tax ratio among the OECD countries. It spent 47% of the value of its GDP on social welfare and social protections, just behind Denmark, but well above the EU average, 40%. Although I should maybe just point out here that that public spend also includes policing and defence, and France spends a lot on defence. But in 2019, France raised 1.1 trillion euro in taxes, while the UK, which has roughly the same population, raised only 852 billion. And we should point out when we talk about taxes that a lot of these are paid by individuals, but around 10% of France's tax take comes from social contributions from employers. So it's not all people paying out of their health packet. And again, if we look at sort of what it's being spent on, France spends 11% of its GDP on healthcare, which is the highest in the EU, although it's roughly the same as the UK. And overall, out of France's tax revenue, 52.9% goes into social security funds. Yeah. And this question of the relationship between the French and the state, I was just uh, looking into it this week. I found an article that was published in 1970 in Le Monde. And this shows kind of how old this question is. And it started with the line, the French do not like their state, but they expect everything from it or almost. They suspect the state of being the instrument of the wealthy and the powerful, but they ask it for assistance and protection. And it ended with the attitude of citizens vis-a-vis the state seems almost unchangeable. It is always the enemy, but at the same time, the saviour. What do the French people, you know, themselves make of this relationship with the state? Um, Yeah, it is, as you say, quite a complicated relationship. But I mean, French people expect a lot from the state. And to be honest, I don't think that's that unreasonable. They're one of the most highly taxed nations in Europe. France is one of the richest countries in Europe and French people expect that their state will provide good services for them. I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation and maybe it's something that uh, citizens of other countries should uh, get behind a bit more robustly. But in general, as you say, the, the attitude to the state is quite interesting. Certainly in terms of the sort of government and the politicians, the French pretty much despise them. French presidents all get terrible approval ratings, no matter which party they're from or who they are. And if you go on a demo, I'd say maybe half the signs will be about whatever the issue is and the other half will just be about how much they hate the government. Yeah, we unearthed some opinion polling on this, which also shed some interesting light on it. A 2020 IFOP poll showed the French fairly evenly divided on this issue. 31% of people said the state was involved in too many areas of life, whilst 28% said it wasn't involved enough, and 40% said it was about right. But even those who said the state was too involved were mostly saying things should be done on a regional or departmental level, which, Emma, is still the state after all, isn't it? It is still the government, guys. It's still the state, yeah. Whilst only 8%, I found this stat interesting, only 8% of people thought the private sector should get involved in things like tax collection or healthcare. That doesn't surprise me at all that it's so low. No, no, absolutely. And I mean, you know, when you have a look at countries where the private sector is heavily involved in public services, they're usually not all that successful. So again, not unreasonable. But I do think among the French, there is an assumption that the state will get involved if there's a problem. You know, we sort of don't see the survivalist prepper type culture that they have in the US. And what we also didn't really see much of at the beginning of the pandemic was panic buying, which I thought was quite interesting because apparently panic buying is an indicator of how much people trust the government. Logically enough that if you're fairly confident that things will keep running, you don't go out and buy 200 toilet rolls. Yeah, you're talking about toilet rolls here that all went missing in the UK and the US at yeah. the beginning of the pandemic. Exactly, there was definitely yeah. toilet roll in, in French supermarkets, wasn't there? There was toilet roll in French supermarkets, yes. We had no problem with that. I trust the French government to make sure there's toilet roll in French supermarkets. <laughs> and other items, yes. Really good. I think it's time now to bring in John Litzfield to give us more analysis on this relationship between the French and the state. John, we're talking about this uh, curious relationship between the French public and the state. You've compared it in the past to a kind of relationship between teenagers and parents. Explain what you mean, John. 
well, someone who was brought up teenager, just that there's a sort of attitude that uh, somehow mum and dad always need to be there. Mum and dad are always wrong. That mum and dad are there to do your, you know, to, to go and collect you late at night from places, for to do your washing for you, but, uh, you know, uh, that uh, they're also constantly to be criticised, constantly to be regarded as kind of fuddy duddies. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate it, not all teenagers are like that, obviously. And there is an element of that. There's a sort of, you know, the French state is a very, very powerful thing and it's important in people's lives. And, and it, there's a sort of love-hate relationship that people have with it. And not a realisation of how much it costs them also as well. The fact that the French state, apart from the Scandinavian countries, I think is the largest largest in economic terms in the, in the EU is not I think, generally recognised in, in France. And do, do they get the value for their money? I, I think their response to the problems that, that do exist in parts of the health service, which is often very good, but often can be very bad, is spend more money on it. But it's already got a huge amounts of money spent on it. So uh, I think this attitude, which I, I would say it's sometimes also becomes almost a toddler attitude rather than a teenager attitude in the sense that, no, I won't take my medicine, roll on the floor, no, we can't change anything. It has to be exactly as it's all always been that sort of attitude you can see now in the present in the present union uh, pension re- reform dispute yeah are they i mean are the french right to be so demanding of their parents of the state you know they pay a lot of money in taxes is this the right attitude that they've got well i think they're right to demand the service that they pay for but i think what you don't get in france is much recognition that somehow a large state like that comes at a cost more than just the cost of you paying in your taxes you know, if you're a French employer, even someone who employs a waiter in a restaurant, what you pay the, uh, the waiter for his wages is only half of what you pay out to employ that person. You pay double quite often in terms of, of payroll taxes. Now, all of that goes for things like pensions, unemployment, the health service and so on. It's used, whether it's used well or not, is another question. There is a lack of recognition. You can hear, hear it in what the kids and especially young people say in the demonstrations on pension reform. The sort of idea that somehow the state is there to sort of to run everything. Is, is kind of very ingrained in, in the French uh, way of thinking. And often, yes, very critical of the state, but also unwilling to accept that uh, the size of the state is a problem for France in many ways. Slightly ungrateful teenagers then, John, I guess. <laughs> France is a strange country in many ways. You know, all countries are strange in many ways. But it's a, it's a country, I think, that often addresses myths rather than the reality of, of its existence. You know, the, 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 some of the actual facts about this pension uh, pension dispute are very rarely mentioned in the media or by the people who argue on both sides. There's often arguments around the ages, but the sort of reality of the of the French pension system and the problem it's, it has is not often discussed in, in great detail. So it is it's a strange country in that way. But I, th- I think, yes, the teenage analogy is an interesting one. I've used it before and got criticism from some French people, but also others who say, yeah, that's exactly the way it is. Excellent. Thanks, John. And just a reminder to listeners, you can read John's latest article online right now at thelocal.fr. Now, it feels like Christmas is just over, but the winter school holidays have already begun in France. Well, not everywhere. That's because France is split into school holiday zones. Emma, this is our reader question. Can you please explain these school holiday zones in France? I find them confusing. They are confusing, yes, but I'm going to give it a go for explaining this. So there are three school holiday zones in mainland France, A, B and C. And 
depending on where you are, you're assigned to a zone, obviously. And the February holidays and the, the spring holidays, which usually take place around Easter, they vary depending on what zone you're in. The other holidays are just set times, but the two in the spring vary. So we have the February holiday now, as you said, it's already started in zone A, it'll start later in zone B, and then it'll start later in zone C. So in total, like the whole of February and the first week of March is taken up by some school holidays. And they're not just as simple as dividing the country into three geographically, they're often quite scattered. So Zone C, for example, includes Paris, but also Toulouse and Montpellier, right at the other end of the country. They are roughly set up so that there's an equal number of people living in each zone. And it's all really chaotic. And I just always assumed that this had just been something that had evolved over the years and had historical reasons. So like in the UK, different local authorities set different holidays. And it's historically been based on things like the time of the potato harvest and whatever. OK, so if it's not to do with potatoes, what is it to do with? Huh? It's to do with tourism, because in France, this only goes back to the 60s. And it is, in fact, a deliberate central government plan. We were just talking about how the state is involved in every aspect of your life. And here's another one. And this was designed to help out the French tourist industry. Basically, instead of just having two weeks of holiday period over February, March or April, May, it creates a five to six week period two five to six week periods in fact when at least one zone will be on holiday and this is especially important for the ski sector because the February holidays are a peak time for French families to go skiing also a lot of schools run ski trips during the February break and it means that tourist businesses get a longer peak holiday period and they can just accommodate more people. Interesting excellent thanks Emma for explaining something I've always found confusing. Now, as regular listeners to Talking France will know, we like to end the show with some handy tips or life hacks for living in France. Before we go on, this week, we want to put an appeal out to you. Now, whether it be bureaucracy, language learning or just general tips, we want to hear your advice for making life in France that little bit easier. You can find an article on our website called Life Hacks. Share your top tips for life in France. Or you can just email us here at news at the local.fr. Let us know any life hacks or tips tips you have that we will share with our listeners. We'll promise to read out the best ones on the show. Jen, before we sign off and say thanks to listeners, uh, you had a little uh, tip this week for us for property buyers or renters. Yes, uh, my tip is to always ask about les charges before you buy or rent an apartment. So sometimes when you go online, you'll find the amazing apartment that seems super affordable and You'll go to the visit and you'll find out that actually there's an additional 300 euro or something like that that you didn't account for. And these are the charges. They're the price of things that are outside of your individual apartment. So the communal areas, if you're living in a shared apartment building, and whether that be the gardien or just paying for cleaning services, or if your apartment has cool amenities like a pool, uh, these are the things that would come in addition to your rent. Uh, so it's definitely good to just ask about that, to be aware, to factor that into your budget as you're looking for apartments in France. Good advice, Jen. I've taken that on board. We were actually looking at a property to buy in Paris and yeah, you go into a nice building and it all looks great and you've worked out your budget, etc., for your mortgage and then you find out that the charge is something like between 300 and 400 euros a month which you need to add on. And that's probably because there's a lift or there's a guardian or the, you know, there's work that needs to be done. But charges sometimes are really cheap if there's no guardian or there's no kind of lift, but definitely worth asking for. My tip, which I also discovered this week, I can't believe I discovered it this week after being in France for years, is the site Dr. Lib, not the actual site itself. Everybody should know Dr. Lib for booking an appointment, whether it's a doctor's appointment or a kind of specialist X-ray or MRI scan. But there's a little button you can tick on Dr. Lib 
which allows you to be notified when somebody else cancels an appointment. So if you find out there's no appointments for a month or two, you can tick this little button and you'll get an email to say that a slot has appeared. And what you've got to do then is be really quick off the mark. Once you get this email, you've got to jump online, snap up that slot, and then you can get an appointment much quicker than you initially expected. But you really need to be quick. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Emma. Thanks to all our listeners this week. That brings us uh, to the end of this episode. I will be back with more next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.